Hello everyone and welcome to the Religious Nationalism Podcast. My name is Crawford Gribben and today Dal Hart and I have the chance to catch up with Samuel Goldman. <coughs> Samuel teaches political science at George Washington University in Washington DC. He's the executive director of the John L. Loeb Jr. Institute for Religious Freedom and he's also director of the Politics and Values Programme at the university as well. Samuel's a very prolific author. He's the author of God's Country, Christian Zionism in America, published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018. He's the author of the forthcoming book, After Nationalism, coming out again with University of Pennsylvania Press uh, in the next few months. He's also literary editor of Modern Age, a conservative quarterly, and a contributing editor at the American Conservative. He's written for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many other publications too. Sam, thanks for your time today, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a delight to have you, especially as you're very much man of the moment. We're recording this just in the days following uh, an event on the 6th of January that you described earlier on today in an article in ProvidenceMag.com as a putsch. What do you mean by that kind of description? What I mean by putsch, uh, which is a term of German, in fact, Swiss German uh, origin, um, is a disorganized and often rather symbolic attack uh, on state power and governing institutions. It doesn't have the degree of coordination or even necessarily the specific intent uh, that are associated with the term coup, but it is a blow, or as the, the word suggests, even in English, a, a push against legally constituted power. And as we've been reflecting and debating about how to understand the events of last Wednesday, it seems to me that this is a concept um, that makes more sense than some of the alternatives that have been suggested. Now, some of your initial feedback to the events of last Wednesday, 6th of January, uh, have, have really generated quite a lot of discussion. I'm thinking in particular of a tweet that you issued that scored, when I last checked, a remarkable 88,000 likes, numerous retweets and lots of commentary. And your tweet, Sam, was to say a lot of people who thought they were part of the con are now discovering they were the marks, which is exactly how a con works. What did you mean by that? What I meant is that there is a cohort of professional conservatives and Republican politicians, uh, many of whom um, believed that President Trump could be an instrument for accomplishing their goals, whether uh, relatively narrow ones like confirming conservative judges to the federal courts or lowering taxes, or even a more ambitious agenda of restoring national pride. And in relying on Trump to accomplish these ends, they tended to excuse or to minimize indications that he didn't care very much about any of it, that he was in it for himself and that his closest bond was to some of his most extreme um, and least reputable followers. And what I think uh, the, the putsch, uh, if we accept the term um, of last week, suggests is that that really was the core of Trump's political career and his administration. 
Um, not to say that there haven't been uh, results that conservatives and Republicans can approve, but that's never really what it's been about. And hopes that Trump and his, his closest supporters could be controlled or steered or managed, I think, turned out to be seriously misplaced. So those are really the marks that I had in mind, uh, who were offered a deal that seemed too good to be true, that someone else would do the difficult work of promoting their goals and they would enjoy the benefits. That is precisely the nature of a con, and it usually turns out that uh, a promise that sounds too good to be true is. And the truth of the promise in this case um, is that Trump uh, is erratic, narcissistic, utterly indifferent to law or constitutional norms. Uh, we won't um, be stuck with him as president for very much longer, but I think um, the damage has been done and the next few years are likely to be extremely unsettled and even dangerous. So can I just ask you to enlarge a little on that, uh, Sam? What's the connection between a con and a putsch? How does a con turn into a putsch? And does the study of religious nationalism give us any helpful tool to elucidate that relationship? Well, in this case, I think the con led to the putsch uh, insofar as the president invited his supporters to take radical and even revolutionary action um, on the basis of a promise that, that he would reveal evidence of this vast conspiracy against him. Um, not only some questionable, at least, uh, decisions regarding to voting procedure, um, but a vast conspiracy involved in falsifying millions of votes around the country. And what they have discovered is that there was nothing there. There is no evidence of any such conspiracy um, for some of the insurrectionists. Um, I think that is irrelevant. They were looking for uh, any excuse. But others, I think, genuinely believed and perhaps even continue to believe that the president is going to reveal the proof that he's promised all along. He's left them holding the bag, um, politically, certainly, but in some cases also legally. And people are going to be subject to criminal prosecution for severe offenses because they believed what he told them. And is religious nationalism part of this narrative, Sam? Well, I don't know that religious nationalism is directly a cause. There have been arguments by some scholars that what they call Christian nationalism um, is a significant su source of support um, for the, the president. Um, and we can go on to talk about that. I think the term Christian nationalism is a gesture towards something real, but is probably too broad to shed much light on that phenomenon. Um, where I do think that maybe there is a connection between some currents um, of American religion um, and these, these political events is a, a 
an inclination toward magical thinking that probably makes people susceptible to the appeals of a con man. Um, one interesting feature of Trump's interaction with American religion has been the closeness of some of his uh, personal followers and administration um, to charismatic uh, communities and movements, especially those associated with the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is really a sort of fusion of the classic con with religious faith. Um, if you invest in God, God will reward you, even under circumstances when that seems utterly incredible. And I don't think Trump appeals intentionally to these these sentiments. I don't know that he's even really aware of them in any explicit sense. But the logic seems to be similar. If you commit absolutely, if you put everything on the line, you will be rewarded no matter how improbable that reward seems. And that is the promise, I think, um, that Trump, uh, Giuliani, um, and other surrogates for the administration have made, not only at the rally last Wednesday. If it were only a matter of that event, it would be much less significant. Um, but consistently uh, since the election itself, and in some ways uh, going back to the beginning of, of Trump's political career uh, during his candidacy for the Republican nomination in 2015. So <clears throat> bringing your book about Christian Zionism then, um, which is uh, very instructive in, in many ways, more so about America perhaps than, than <clears throat> Israel or, or Jews in the world. Um, <clears throat> I'm curious if you see any kind of overlap between Christian Zionism, prosperity gospel folks, and uh, the degree to which say this doesn't have to be all about Trump, but the, I mean, he's had a very pro-Israel uh, administration and is it genuine or not? You could, I mean, with his son-in-law as, as much a part of uh, the affairs in the, in the White House at times, Jared, um, it would seem that some of that is actually genuine. So is there a sense in which that wasn't a con, say the appeal to a, a Christian Zionism and that Trump himself may buy it in some way. And, but, but then again, I wonder if his, the people who were out there rallying um, on Wednesday, the ones peacefully and unpeacefully, um, if, they, if that is any way part of the way they understand the United States. Well, I think in answering that question, it, it's important to distinguish between the state of Israel as it really exists in a place on the map with particular institutions and interests and Israel the symbol. And to the extent that Trump appealed to Christian Zionism as Christian support for the really existing state of Israel, it, it was not a con. Um, Trump uh, has not only been among our most enthusiastically supportive uh, presidents, supportive of, of Israel, um, but has also been among our most successful. And, and I, I think that um, Trump's really 
counterintuitive, or at least contrary to the conventional wisdom, approach to Israel uh, and to Middle East politics has been one of the great successes of his administration. So that, that, was not, that was not a con. That was very real. And I think it is true that if he were anyone else, uh, he would receive the Nobel Prize um, mm. for the results of, of his, his diplomacy uh, in, in the Middle East. But that, I think, is not the sense in which Israel is, is most relevant to these broader political movements. Um, in those cases, I think Israel is a symbol of the possibility of divine intervention in history. It, it, is, it is perhaps the most, the most vivid example one can imagine um, of God intervening in the normal course of human events, or at least it, it can be interpreted in those, uh, in those terms. And if you believe that the establishment of the state of Israel was a miracle of a fairly literal kind, then you might be inclined to believe that other miracles are also possible. And that just as uh, Jews on, on this interpretation um, prayed and hoped fervently for God to assist them, which he generously did, realizing the hopes of centuries and millennia, so too others might enjoy the same form of favor. Now, really? oh. Hey, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on a Zoom call. I got, I'll call you back. All right, thanks. Bye. That was a word from our sponsor. Excuse us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think that is a flawed understanding um, of what the establishment of the state of Israel means, both religiously and, and politically, but it's certainly been an important one um, in American culture and in particular um, on what used to be called uh, the Christian right. And again, I don't think that Trump is aware of this explicitly or is appealing to it cynically. He just doesn't seem to operate that way. But the promise of a miracle, of this, of an extraordinary thing happening that has been hoped for but was dismissed as impossible is part of his appeal. Um, and and I, I suspect, I don't know, and I don't want to speculate um, about people's psychological condition or, or private opinions. But I, I have reason to think um, that if one had gone down to the, the rally uh, last week and had talked to people uh, about their views um, of, of the state of Israel, um, some echo of that would not be an uncommon response, whether or not um, people use precisely the words that I have. And in fact, I saw something over the weekend, I think a story about the shofar and the, the use of that, which is the, the horn, the trumpet, right? Am right. I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. Um, and I don't know if those were on the mall that day or not, but. Um, so I don't, I don't know um, if the shofar, if shofars were used on the mall um, 
last week, but the previous rally um, organized by uh, Eric Metaxas, among other huh. figures, alluded explicitly to that. It was the Walls of Jericho <laughs> march, right, right, uh, right. Uh, including okay. the, the trumpet of Gabriel, which was not a trumpet um, in in the modern sense. It was it was a shofar, which is the traditional ritual horn. Um, of of the Jewish people, so that's that's a case where these two different political and religious mythologies, for lack of a better word, and I don't mean that in a in a dismissive sense. Um, these these stories and ways of understanding um, the world came very close together. Um, and I haven't watched all of the footage um, of the, the Walls of Jericho march. I don't know whether uh, shofars were used, but it's, it's, it's evoking the same symbols and the same stories. So before I let Crawford get another word in, let me just follow up. So <clears throat> moving from the recent events and Trump, uh, your book is not about that per se. Your book is about a longer intellectual history of uh, Christian Zionism in the Anglo-American world, particularly America. And um, it's actually quite fascinating to see this uh, wing of Protestantism so partial to Israel or the Jews. And, and of course, you parse that different ways you may to come at what Zionism looks like. And you have a very helpful definition in the book, but I'm curious um, if you have thoughts about why the Anglo-American Protestant world would have been so, say, seemingly philo-Semitic, philo-Semitic, as opposed to, I mean, whether you want to caricature Lutheranism and Germans and Protestants and whatnot, it does seem like an outlier in that way, even though it can lead to some really wacky stuff as well, like the shofar on, on 2021 America. Um, do you have any, have you thought much about why that's the case? Yeah, I mean, I think paradoxically, it has something to do with the fact that um, for most of colonial history, really for all of colonial history and, and much of um, American national history, there were very few Jews. Hmm. And the absence of really existing Jewish communities with their own interests and preferences and organizations allowed the, the Jewish story or the story of Israel to be reclaimed symbolically much more easily than it would have been possible to do in parts of Europe um, where there were many Jews who could speak for themselves, as mm. it were. Um, so in the book, I talk about this a little bit, and I, I have expanded on it in um, some of my public remarks. I think it's more helpful to speak of these Anglo-American traditions as philo-Hebraic, <clears throat> philo-Semitic. And what I mean by that is that they they embrace um, the symbolism and imagery and stories of the biblical Israel, but that they are not necessarily grounded on enthusiasm for actual Jews. Mm -hmm. 
and one of the paradoxical results of this is that really until at least World War I, um, and arguably even later than that, most American Jews were, if, if not opposed to Zionism, at least indifferent to Zionism. Hmm. Zionism was much more popular as a cause among Christians. And that's because many Christians saw the establishment of a Jewish state as a fulfillment of the biblical narrative. Whereas many <clears throat> American Jews said, we don't want another state. America is, is our home. Um, and we want to avoid any suggestion of dual loyalty or, or insufficient patriotism. Hmm. Um, I, I think those tensions are somewhat reduced now. Um, especially in recent decades as Christian Zionists um, have engaged more closely with the actually existing state of Israel, um, not just as, as a concept. Um, but even then, these distinctions tend to be somewhat latent um, in uh, what, what looks in the abstract like philo-Semitism. Um, uh, Christian Zionists often distinguish implicitly between the good Jews who are Israelis <laughs> or Orthodox Jews who are fulfilling their, their appropriate religious mission and bad Jews uh, <laughs> who are, uh, you know, the Woody Allen types uh, in, uh, in New York or, or other cities um, who are much more liberal in their politics and tend also to be much more skeptical of Zionism. It's interesting you bring up Alan, because I was just going to make the point that my own experience growing up in a uh, very conservative, even fundamentalist Protestant home, where there would have been a lot of dispensationalism in the mix. Um, and uh, there was a sense in which, even though my, my dad watched Late Night with Johnny Carson and the Jewish comics would come on, there was a sense in which I don't think he really got that humor. And I'm not claiming that I necessarily get it, but I'm actually fascinated by uh, Jewish humor. And I don't know if you've seen this documentary, When Jews Were Funny, which is a um, documentary by a Canadian Jewish comic who goes back and in, um, interview some of the old guys from vaudeville era even whose names i can't remember right now but it is amazingly fascinating to think about the ways in which jews have contributed a certain humor to america but also more generally what it is about being jewish that creates that sense of humor which does seem to me to be very distinct from other kinds of humor and uh, one other pop culture reference here is the marvelous mrs Maisel, mm. which is a wonderful show but i can't believe how jewish it is that they they i mean it's there's nothing against that i i, I kind of revel in it but it's it's still a world that probably is very far from the people who are blowing shofars out on the um, on the mall when they're marching i i i suspect that's true although i i've been interested and in. i haven't seen the the documentary although i have seen the, the title um 
listed on Amazon or, or Netflix, whatever it is, when Jews were funny in the, in the past tense, um, suggesting that Jews aren't funny anymore. And I, I think there's actually a lot of truth to that. It's not an accident that um, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is a period piece. Um, so at this same moment that there seems to be increasing public acceptance or, or enjoyment of, of this distinctive American Jewish culture, it's increasingly only as the object of nostalgia rather huh. than huh. A, a, a living um, culture. Um, and I was watching reruns of Seinfeld the other night, and huh. it occurred to me that as late as the 1990s, when Seinfeld was running, those characters could not be explicitly identified as being Jewish, even though they so obviously uh, so obviously are. So there may be a, a Hegelian quality here, <laughs> you know, the owl of Minerva flying only at only at at dusk. Um, in in the same way, appreciation of this American Jewish culture um, has become nostalgic. Uh, as it's lost almost any basis um, in in social reality. Well, Sam, there is this um, very interesting aspect to what you're saying about the emulation or imitation or even performativity of of, of Jewishness in a non non Jewish culture, individuals or, or communities, and it strikes me that. Uh, a lot of what you're talking about is is about ways in which people are using images or stereotypes or cultural artifacts from what they perceive to be Jewishness to shape themselves. Um, there's interesting historiography, Eric Nelson's book here, The Hebrew Republic, some interesting historiography that, that would argue that that's, that's a... a, a that, that's something that's that's really been institutionalised in the way that Western cultures have come to think about the very nature of government itself. So, you know, setting aside the shofars and, and, and comedians and so on, how, how do you respond to that kind of argument that actually at the very root of early modernity and early modern ways of thinking about government and politics are these models that, that are drawn from the Hebrew Bible that so profoundly shape the way that we think about societies and, and even nations i think i think that's that's absolutely true um and we are all indebted to nelson um and other scholars who have documented this much more extensively and carefully than than i have ever attempted to do um where i think that argument can perhaps be exaggerated is when these hebraic or biblical models are emphasized to the exclusion of others. Um, and I think what's that what what's fascinating but also frustrating about the early modern period um, and really the series of events that lead to the establishment of, of the American Republic is how eclectic and syncretic it is and how politicians and uh, uh, publicists combine and conflate and pick and choose from models and sources and traditions that seem to us to be incompatible. So 
it's absolutely true that the the Hebrew Bible um, is a source for modern understandings of Republican government and nationhood. Um, but so are uh, distinctively Christian elements of, of biblical theology. So is the Roman inheritance. So are medieval uh, and Germanic institutions that have somehow been, been mashed up into what we can describe loosely as as modern modern republicanism um and one of the things i've i've been writing about recently and that i discuss more in my forthcoming book after nationalism um is how the tensions between these currents and traditions have remained um, and I think that to concentrate on the relation between American institutions and political thought and the Hebrew Bible in, in particular, there is a real shift in the early 19th century, more or less, away from these Hebraic sources um, and toward a more liberal, but also more uh, post-millenarian understanding of the workings of prov providence and the the influence of the divine on political history so you've written this this great book sam uh, which we've talked about in another context god's country christian zionism in america came out in 2018 um is You've used the word eclectic, and, and I think that's that's a feature of Christian Zionism. It's not often appreciated, but I think you bring it out here in this book um, really well. But I, I'm curious. I mean, I've, I've I've been reading about Christian Zionism for such a long time, and I suppose I, I still can't get my head around this question. Maybe you could offer an insight. To, to what extent is Christian Nash, is Christian Zionism a kind of a projection of an idealized nationalism? onto another community or culture or people does that does that kind of question make sense in other words is it is it like is it something that must be projected and who's who's it doing work for well i i think as is often the case there is an element of of reality or of a legitimate historical theological and textual basis and an element of projection. Um, Christians or, or Gentiles who read the Hebrew Bible as a source of political inspiration in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries unavoidably projected onto it some of their own questions and concerns and dispositions not cynically and not because they were trying to craft a myth or to tell lies in any intentional sense, but because that's, that's inherent to the process of reading and interpretation. So they found in those sources a model of a particular kind of self-governing nation. But having found that, they began to see it everywhere they looked, including uh, in, in themselves. And one of the tensions or, or ambiguities that I discuss in the book um, is the way that Americans try to balance their belief that the, the nation, the, the land and people of Israel were, were God's country, were God's 
chosen people, and that in some sense, they were also God's chosen people, and that this, this land was a promised land. It's very hard to reconcile those claims logically. But I also don't think that strict philosophical logic is is the right criterion um, for this imaginative or or mythic dimension of of thought. Um, parallelism is a recurring feature of this kind of thinking because because it because it works, um, and I think that that continues uh, today among. Christian Zionists who believe that there is a, a special place um, for Israel um, in the history of the whole human race, but also that there's a special place for America. Um, somewhat, I guess, different angle on this topic, um, but I wanted to ask this before you get away from us, since we're sort of running out of time, <clears throat> and it and it involves. Um, You've written about Yoram Hazoni's book on on nationalism, and his his uh, part of what he does in that book is to con contrast nationalism, and he roots it in the Old Testament accounts of a, of a particular nation set apart from other nations, as opposed to imperialism, which is much more of an abstraction. Um, so that would suggest that Judaism has built into it a nationalist character. But then there's sitting on my other shoulder is Shadi Hamid and his book on Islam and nationalism from about four or five years ago now, which I thought made a really uh, poignant observation about uh, nationalism in the modern nation state sense anyway, post 17th century, not making sense to is Islam or to Muslims because the way Islam evolved anyway was much more imperial, um, conceivably. So I, I'm curious if you um, think that Judaism lends itself more toward the particular, more toward the nation, and if that's a way of contrasting it with, say, something like Islam, or is it – is uh, – I'm just curious if you thought much about Hamid as well as Hazoni. I mean, I, I think it depends on the on the point of comparison. So, uh, Judaism or or Jewish traditions are, I think, more receptive to nationalism, or nationalism is is more receptive to them than appears to be the case in in Islam. Um, which is not to say that one can't generate a Jewish case against nationalism or a Muslim case for nationalism, but the the elective affinities, mm -hmm. as it were, um, seem to be much, much closer. So to that extent, I, I agree um, with Hazoni. Um, I, I would hesitate, however, to assert that Judaism is inherently or essentially nationalistic, uh, because then I think one runs the risk of reducing a, a, an old and vast uh, and great tradition uh, to a, a specific political conclusion, which is certainly part of it and is, is a potential within it, um, but nevertheless, 
that that procedure seems excessively um, reductive to me. And and ultimately, as uh, some of Hazoni's critics, including Rabbi Meyer Soloveitchik, have pointed out in his um, recent uh, lecture to First Things uh, magazine, the 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 purpose of the nation of Israel, uh, according to the Hebrew Bible um, and traditional Judaism, is to serve God, who is universal and transcends human interests uh, and 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 preferences. So, to claim uh, or to suggest that the the nationalist element of of Judaism is entirely closed off um, seems seems excessive. Sam, Crawford, can, you, Sam, can, sorry, go ahead. Can we can we can we wind up our discussion by asking you to give us some um, some some anticipation of what we can look forward to in After Nationalism, your new book, which comes out in a couple of months, I think. So the main argument of After Nationalism um, is that many of the stories and arguments and assumptions that we take for granted as essential to American national identity um, and which are now seen as, as threatened, um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is, is a different question, um, are largely products of the middle of the 20th century, and in particular, the institutional and ideological consolidation that followed uh, the Pearl Harbor attack and then was um, cemented, as it were, by, by the early Cold War. And that if we can figure out how to look beyond those events, which means looking beyond living memory. It's, it's not accidental, I think, um, that this consolidation is just at the margin of what active participants in civic life can, can themselves recall. We find that there have been a series of different stories about what it means to be American and what the purposes of the American nation are. Um, and each of those stories has advantages, um, each has disadvantages, but they're not the same. And the title is an attempt to raise this question <laughs> of what we do when we discover that there is not just one uh, placid reservoir of American nationalism waiting for us to discover or, or requiring defense from its culture despises, despisers, rather there is a perennial question. And we are going to have to find a new answer that will not be entirely discontinuous with those that have preceded it, but probably won't look exactly like them either. And I don't have that answer. Um, if I did, I, I would I would tell people. Um, but I do think um, that small c conservative attempts to simply recover the way of speaking about American national identity that was common in the 1950s and early 1960s simply are not going to work. Sam, well, right. you're right. one last question. One last question. Sorry. Um, since we began with Twitter, um, people who follow you on Twitter know that you 
seemingly are a very good cook uh, since you, you, you post uh, photos of, of some of your meals. So what's on the menu tonight? Well, that's, that's, that's a good question. Um, I roasted a chicken last night, so I'm planning to uh, use up the leftovers um, in, some, in some enchiladas. Okay, good. Good to know. Well, I'll, I'll you, just you, t- would both, you would both be invited if you were not <laughs> miles away uh, and, and subject to a lockdown. I'm not sure no enchiladas are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope to be in your company sometime soon when you're serving because um, you look like you make some great meals. But thanks very much for coming on with us. Look forward to reading your next book um, and to talking to you again. But thanks again, Sam, for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you again for having me. Thank you. Sure. Well, Daryl, how did you enjoy that? That was great. I was, it was, um, I've emailed, corresponded with, with Sam, and we've gone back and forth on Twitter many times. It was nice to um, get to hear him directly and even see him here in this Zoom chat that we have that, that listeners won't have available. Um, and I still really would like to be a, a guest in his home when he's serving food. <laughs> um but I, I, I continue to be uh, st- struck by the uh, appeal of Christian Zionism to Anglo-American Protestants. His his um, his answer about the distinction between Jews in reality versus Jews in in the ideal is something I hadn't thought enough about, and um, it, it I need to when I teach religion in America again if. Uh, see how much that makes sense of, um, say, the numbers of Jews in America at different phases. But I, I, I suspect that has a lot to do with it. But um, so, you know, but since we started our conversation off talking about the, the rallies last week and, and, and the insurrection and Trump and and uh, Trump's own uh, very positive views of modern day Israel, I guess having you know, I, I, I'm struck by how hard it is for American Protestants uh, on the non-liberal side to kick the habit of some kind of Christian Zionism um, and the degree to which premillennialism in some way is responsible for that. Although Sam's book is really good about also noticing that liberal or mainline Protestants were also – Christian Zionists, especially at the time of the founding of Israel. Um, so it's just, it's just a fascinating part of American Protestantism that you have this uh, ongoing appeal of Israel and Jews. And it, I guess it points back to the difficulty of trying to reconcile the Old and New Testaments, not that it can't be done, but trying to make those two books cohere is is a, a real challenge. And uh, this is one way of doing it. Yeah. But I'm curious what you I mean, where Christian Zionism stands these days in the British world of, of Protestantism, do you yeah, think? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I mean, I think historically it was very powerful. And, you know, lots of people who write about Zionism, the roots of Christian Zionism, go back to the, the English 17th century in particular, where you have the, among English Puritans this kind of massive revival um, 
start your lunch order coming in again, Darren. <laughs> uh, but a, a massive revival of, of interest in sort of end times prophecy and, you know, therefore, what, what is the, the state of the Jews within that? And, and yet, you know, as, as, uh, as Sam was emphasising, it's a completely symbolic argument because the Jews had been expelled from England, at least officially in, was it 1290? Uh, so all this discussion is going on completely notionally in, in a land ah. from, you know, from, from in which there are ostensibly, or there is ostensibly no Jewish population. And then, of course, you know, it sort of takes on a life of its own, doesn't it, through the 18th, in, especially into the 19th century, where you get people like John Nelson Darby really calling attention to the, the Jewishness of the Hebrew Bible and emphasising that, that prophecies that are made there are to be fulfilled literally for the Jewish people, spiritually for Gentiles, but literally for the Jewish people. And therefore that, you know, he begins to argue that that, that means that certain things are going to happen. I think where, where Sam's book is really important for me is it refuses to, to draw a very easy, lazy link between Darbyite dispensationalism and Christian Zionism that lots of other historians do. They seem to think one inevitably leads to the other. But of course, Sam's book recognises that that's not the case because Darby was anti-politics. So, mm. so to cast Darby somehow as the father of Christian Zionism really misunderstands what Darby's project was all about, which was calling people away from politics, expecting things to happen, but calling people away from away from politics. Um, you know, so so that kind of Darbyite dispensationalism would have had no truck at all with the kind of protest he saw on the sixth of January, even though. Uh, many of the claims, symbols, songs, posters, etc., even you know the, the shofar blowing, uh, resonates in symbolic ways with some of his arguments. But but you know it's it's a it's an appropriation. As, and well, we, so sorry. Well, just just can observe that maybe sure. maybe part of the reason for that is because um, Darbyite dispensationalism gives uh, fundamentalists, Protestant fundamentalists, a, 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 an avenue to think about politics. But then it becomes the way in which they think about politics. So, mm. um, you know, a, a non-political culture becomes a highly politicised culture, precisely organised precisely around this issue. And I, I wonder maybe if that's why it's so utterly significant, because it's the presenting issue through which evangelicals, I probably need to nuance this or qualify this, but through which evangelicals first became interested in politics in a very significant way. Mm. Well, since you're you have a book coming out on Christian survivalists and militia folks, and if uh, David Koresh is in that realm of he's not, I don't. Well, but go go ahead. Well, I'm 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 just curious if how much millenarian thinking there is in those circles that that you've picked up on. It's it's the structure of the discourse. You know, huh. it's it's um, even, you know, you, you'll find premillennialists in that subculture, you'll find postmillennialists in that subculture. You'll even find people in that subculture who are not confessing Christians of any kind, but who nevertheless buy into certain kinds of prophetic narrative. And if they don't buy into the prophetic narrative, they certainly buy into the prophetic structure, which is that accelerated notion of decay and crisis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that. I mean, I suppose declinism is, is a fundamental part of lots of conservative cultures anyway, but this is declinism and steroids, you know. Um, 
leading to utterly unpredictable consequences. But but the Branch Davidians are, are not in this. Yeah, we're not part of this. The the where I think less so are. I think the the guy who's currently involved in the Branch Davidians says, from what I understand, it could be wrong, but but I, I think from what I understand, he is reinterpreted prophecy you know it's, it's one of the ways in which you sustain a prophetic community after its claims are disconfirmed uh, you sort of you spiritualize it or you, you normalize it in some way like the quakers did you know after the english civil war they spiritualized everything and were therefore able to continue in a way that for example the fifth monarchists were never able to do hmm. but i mean you hmm. must see this in the states as well right but i'm not i i'm so far removed it seems to me from those kinds of circles. Um, they walk among us now. No, I, I, I think that's probably true, but for whatever reason, I don't present as someone who readily would hear it. And in the networks, either social or personal, um, it just doesn't come across my radar. And even when I hear that these kinds of people may be in my own communion I don't necessarily come across them at least at general assembly <laughs> which is about as far as far into you know a wider body as as you can get um, it's a rock and roll life <laughs> well you need to go and get your lunch so I do and you need to get your supper enjoy. probably yeah all right see you later okay